The following podcast contains explicit language. We are sending an armada, very powerful. He, quote, realized it's not so easy. I mean... You never know, do you? You never know. Is that... We have submarines, very powerful. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who doesn't give a shit how much it costs taxpayers for him to play golf every weekend at Mar-a-Lago. Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. But while it may be sunny at the Trump National Golf Course, there are storm clouds over Korea. North Korea appears to be preparing to test a missile with the range to reach the continental United States. Donald Trump has said he won't allow that to happen and has sent a huge naval flotilla to Korea as a show of force. China, which is historically North Korea's only friend, thinks escalating tensions could lead to war. Japan's National Security Council is discussing how to evacuate 57,000 Japanese citizens if it comes to that. In a moment, I'll speak to North Korea expert Victor Cha about how likely a war is this weekend. And Slate Plus members, stay tuned for a conversation with David Graham of The Atlantic about Donald Trump's week of flip-flops. My guest today is Victor Cha. He's a professor at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service. He was director of Asian Affairs at the National Security Council under President George W. Bush. And uh, he's the author of, of several books about North Korea, including I think the most recent one of them was The Impossible State. Professor Cha, thanks for joining me today. Sure, it's my pleasure. How worried should people listening to this program be about war breaking out on the Korean Peninsula this weekend? Um, I don't think we should be too worried about war breaking out. Uh, I think we should be worried about a nuclear test or possibly more missile tests and uh, a more medium-term prospect of North Korea within the next couple of years having an ICBM capability that could reach the United States. I mean, that's the thing I think that's most concerning. Um, but absent some massive miscalculation by either the United States, South Korea, or North Korea, I don't expect that there's going to be any war this weekend. So say they do test a ballistic missile or something, say, this weekend. Do you think that Trump won't retaliate? He's, he has been engaged in a certain amount of saber-rattling. Rat- I mean, I think he tweeted a couple of days ago that if China won't deal with North Korea, the United States will. Um yeah, well, I think that he has sent a strike group to the region. Um, I don't think the purpose of that strike group is to rain missiles down on North Korea. This is like the naval flotilla, the the aircraft yeah. carriers, yeah. Right. This is the aircraft carrier that Carl Vinson and an accompanying strike group of, of ships. The purpose of that, I think, is to really try to deter North Korea from doing any, any more testing. And, and if they do test it, be in a better position to monitor gain information, and if necessary, defend against an errant missile that might go off off direction or head, look like it's headed in the wrong direction. I mean, that's what I think that flotilla is there for. Um, aside from that, I think the primary effort now is to really, to a diplomatic one, to try to push China much harder in terms of cutting down their economic contacts with North Korea. That is a road that we really haven't gone down fully in the past two agreements that the United States has negotiated with North Korea. And so I think his desire is to try to test that road before he considers anything more rash. 
And first, I guess, explain a little to our listeners why China has leverage over North Korea. Is it mainly because they're the country that has most of the existing trade with North Korea? Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Um, for a long time, China had a very good political relationship with North Korea. Uh, in fact, had quite a good, great good deal of influence in North Korea. But after the current leader in North Korea executed his uncle in 2013, um, his uncle was the primary conduit for contacts with China. Since then, China has lost all political contact with the North Korean regime and really has no influence over it. However, 85% of North Korea's external trade is with one country today, and that is with China. Um, and so China, even though they don't have political influence, and they claim they don't have political influence, they, have a, they still have a great deal of material influence on the regime. Um, if they were to cut off some of that trade, there's not a whole lot of other people that North Korea can trade with. There are not a lot of countries out there that are willing or interested in engaging in the volume of trade and often with at patron prices that the Chinese are willing to do. I mean, it sounds like sanctions from anyone else must be pretty pointless. If China has 85 percent, then if we're talking about the rest of the world, we're talking about 15 percent, which is kind of meaningless in that context. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's absolutely right. And to think about it, it's kind of amazing that we were able to get two nuclear agreements with North Korea in the past, even though China was carrying on that sort of trade. But I think this time, um, the people in the policy community have really focused on this basic fact. And I think Trump himself has focused on this basic fact. Uh, and I think it's become clear, at least in the U.S. policy position, that if China's not going to help by cutting down some of that trade, as you mentioned in your earlier question, then Trump's going to want to go it alone. It, it sounded like going into his meeting with Xi Jinping in, in Mar-a-Lago a week ago, this was Trump's view, that he had to get China to use its leverage because it had the only leverage. But then he came out of it and he made that kind of amazing statement that after 10 minutes talking to him, he realized it wasn't so easy. You know, his, he did, did, did Xi Jinping kind of talk him down and, and persuade him that actually China can't really do that much and doesn't have that much leverage over North Korea? I would imagine that Xi Jinping, you know, deployed the same talking points that the Chinese always deploy when it comes to North Korea, and that is that they don't have any political influence and that the United States has to sit down and negotiate with them, things of that nature. But And, and I think in the end, if we're going to avoid any sort of conflict, there has to be some sort of diplomacy that takes place. But it seems to me, you know, it doesn't make any sense for the United States to go back to a negotiation, you know, for a third time with North Korea while 85% of their trade is with China. There's absolutely no pressure. There's no pain that North Korea feels for pursuing this nuclear path as long as that trade continues. And one hopes that that, you know, that's the rationale. That's the argument for a successful negotiation going in is that you have to have a trade cutoff. Otherwise, North Koreans have no, feel no compunction to deal. Yeah, I mean, we sort of made this deal with them a couple of times. I mean, you were, I think, involved in the nuclear negotiations with North Korea under uh, President Bush, 43. But there were there were two deals that I guess preceded you where we essentially paid them in, in fuel or whatever it was to freeze their nuclear program. And it just didn't work. They, they got the they got the payment, but then they went back to it. Right. That's absolutely right. And the I think the added complication here is that if we were to ever to go back to another sort of deal of that nature, it's hard for me to imagine that President Trump is going to pay for heavy fuel oil or other shipments in order to 
enforce a freeze, at least a temporary freeze of their program as you try to negotiate denuclearization and dismantlement of the program. You know, the United States in the past two agreements was was providing uh, funds for interim energy assistance in the form of heavy fuel oil to North Korea in order to keep the program freeze as we tried to negotiate uh, a denuclearization package. It's very hard for me to imagine that this president is going to want to pay for a freeze for something that hasn't worked um, in the last the last two years. So that, you know, for those who are looking for a diplomatic off-ramp, that's an added complication that I think is unique to this presidency. So, Bruce, so we know that Donald Trump really hates bad deals, and he doesn't want to make a bad deal with North Korea again. In fact, this is probably not a deal to be made with them, period, uh, given there haven't been any negotiations in a decade anyhow. Right, so. Right. Aren't you worried that for that option being foreclosed, that Trump, who is a, a hot-headed president, is you know will resort more easily to a military option? Yeah, I, I think there's certainly that temptation, um, but most people would agree that the Syrian theater or the Afghan theater is very different from the Korean theater in the sense that North Korea, even if we were to use any sort of military force on North Korea. They have an ability to retaliate that uh, these other places don't, and they can retaliate immediately uh, and very effectively uh, against population centers in Seoul, the capital city of South Korea, or in Tokyo, the capital city of Japan, whereas the United States has uh, you know, tens of thousands of troops, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of expatriates, as well as you know, the 10 million that live in Seoul and, and the millions that live in Tokyo. I mean, North Korea... It doesn't have to fire missiles. They can just fire artillery, which is literally within 30 seconds warning time of, um, of, of Seoul. the capital city yeah. of Seoul. Yeah. So in a, in a sense, North Korea has always had a built-in deterrent against U.S. attack because unless we're willing to sustain those sorts of casualties in the initial hours of a, of a military exchange, one which we, we would eventually win, there's no denying that, but there would be huge cost that comes with that. Um tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of casualties and trillions of dollars in damage. And that's always been the difference of the problem when you talk about military options on North Korea. I think every president going back to uh, George H.W. Bush, when they've done a policy review of North Korea, have looked at the military options. Um, and uh, I think that the fact that none of them have chosen that option in the past really speaks to what a difficult uh, military scenario this is when you compare it to other places we use force. But fear of, of that kind of military blackmail has prevented robust retaliation from North Korean attacks. I mean, for example, the Sony cyber attack, you know, we, we retaliated in some formal way, but it doesn't seem like it was much of a response. That was an attack on on a business in our country. And then this, you know, most recent bizarre assassination of um, King Jong-un's half-brother. It's really dangerous to be semi-related to this guy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, the, I mean, the Malaysians essentially capitulated, didn't they? They let all these, no, these North Korean so-called diplomats, but really people who were involved in planning this assassination, go back to North Korea. Yeah, and they had to let him go back because the North Koreans basically held the entire Malaysian uh, embassy personnel in Pyongyang, held them hostage unless they would let these uh, these assassins go. Um so that's what it's like in terms of dealing in terms of dealing with North Korea. 
You mentioned the cyber piece. That's also very important. We focus a lot on the nuclear and the missile program, but um, their cyber program is quite, it's quite advanced. Before the hack of Sony Pictures Entertainment, nobody thought they had those sorts of capabilities, but I think now people are very well aware of them. And our own study of this has found that those, the, the cyber piece of this is something that is done in the same units in the North Korean military and in the structure that carry out terrorist attacks, as well as the missile program and the nuclear program. So um, they are pro- you know, prosecuting not just nuclear and and WMD, they are prosecuting cyber terrorism at the same time. I mean, in your your book, Professor Cha, you you say this regime is not ultimately sustainable. So that really leaves the question of how does it end? Because something that can't be sustained has to come to an end. Um, so I I do believe that the regime is not sustainable in today's day and age. And the primary weakness I think in the regime is the fact that they have allowed market forces to grow inside of the country. They've done that largely because the ration system has broken down uh, and people are starting to fend for themselves. People are living off the market and they don't really care what the government gives them anymore. The incidents, anecdotal evidence of any sort of social resistance in North Korea has always revolved around one thing, and that is when the government undertakes any sort of anti-market or any any anti-entrepreneurial activities. That's when the people get the most upset. Um, and the government seems to do this about every 10 years. Um, so I think it's only a matter of time. Sooner or later, they will feel like they're losing control of the system because people are making money, they're living in markets, uh, they're developing civil society around markets, and eventually they will try to crack down again. Um, and that will re- be the real important uh, watershed moment. That'll be the trigger if anything ever happens in terms of the stability of the of the regime. But you see it ending through implosion rather than explosion in the sense that the regime will be be attacked from within. The people won't be willing to tolerate it. There'll be a rebellion rather than a, a provocation that leads to external conflict. Uh, I think that I think that, yes, the, the former is more likely. You know, of course, we can't put a, any sort of time frame on this because we just don't know. Um, in that sense, North Korea, you know, North Korea is stable up until the day it's not stable. The other thing is that it, 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 social revolution is hard to imagine in North Korea just because nobody has arms except the military. But there are, you know, people in the elite now who are also unhappy with the way life is and the way the regime is. And so I think it's a confluence of forces that could eventually lead to um, some sort of significant dissonance or churn inside the system that could cause it to crack. One way or the other, the past several presidents have deferred the issue. They've they've kicked the can down the road. Do you think Trump is going to be the one who either isn't able to kick the can down the road for the period he's in office, or will choose not to, and will that we'll see see the the kind of final confrontation under his presidency? I think everybody is everybody who looks at this is concerned that we can't kick the can down the road any further largely because North Korea is going to be able to demonstrate a capability to reach the continental United States during President Trump's term in office. That, you know, that will be the moment at which the entire picture will change. And I think everybody thinks that's going to happen certainly within the next three years, if not, if not sooner than that. On the other hand, if the United States can live with another country besides Russia and China, uh, having the ability to reach the United States with a nuclear weapon, in this case, a, a rogue nation that has a leadership that is 
does all sorts of bad things. If we're willing to accept that and just try to deter it, we can kick the can down the road again, you know, even further. But I think most people believe that's just not an acceptable outcome. And even President Trump himself tweeted a while back that it won't happen while he's president. So uh, if that's he's he's true, drawn a line in the sand on on that has, issue. Yeah, he, he said has, he will not yeah. tolerate that. Right. He said he said uh, it, I think his words were or at least his tweet was it won't happen. And so that is drawing a line. In, in the past, we've been able to kick this thing down the road for decades now, but we may not be able to do that anymore. Yeah. What would your advice to him be as this as the North Koreans get close to testing that kind of capability? I mean, if ever there were a case for preventive war, it seems to me this is it. Yeah, I mean, it, it is tough. I mean, North Korea truly is the land of lousy options. Uh, when we made choices when we were in government, when it came to North Korea, it wasn't a choice of, you know, this is a bad option, this is a good option. The choices were, this is a bad option, this is a even worser option, and this is the worst option. There was no good choices, only bad ones. And I think that's pretty much what President Trump faces when he has to deal with a threat like this. You know, to me, the big question is whether we are going to allow North Korea to end up a three-stage rocket in which they would be able to test an ICBM capability. You know, that is that is a question of declaratory policy, whether the United States is going to say we will not allow that, that sort of capability to be launched, or whether we're going to not make any sort of declaratory statements and try to shoot it down once it's in the air. Uh, those seem to be the, the, the things I think that people are thinking about the most but certainly not yet an attack on on North Korea, a preventive attack or a preemptive attack. How soon do you think that that kind of missile test could come? I mean, the the rhetoric from the Chinese seems very concerned. I mean, they seem to see this as as a very volatile situation right now. Yeah, I mean, I'm worried about it. Um, I'm not trying to be um, cute or anything, but the spring season really is missile testing season in North Korea. We've sort of seen it. We've seen it historically. Uh, when President Obama took office in 2009, uh, the first thing the North Koreans did in April of 2009 was launch a three-stage missile. You know, back then, nobody believed they could put a nuclear warhead on that, but now everybody believes they can. That's the big difference now. So um, it's certainly something that could happen through the end of this month, April, uh, because of North, uh, U.S. ROK military exercises, which the North Koreans feel a need to respond to. May 9th is the South Korean presidential elections, and all of our data shows that they like to do provocations around U.S. and South Korean presidential elections. So I think, you know, the next few weeks is a very, really important window to watch in terms of what they may do, either on the nuclear side or in the long-range missile side. I've been speaking to Victor Cha. He's a professor at Georgetown and the author of books including The Impossible State about North Korea. Professor Cha, thanks for joining me on Trumpcast. Thank you very much. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. Have you given us a rating and review on iTunes? It's never too late. It helps other people find the show, and we always appreciate it. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.